Welcome to Wolfpack Career Chats from NC State University's Career Development Center, the only podcast dedicated to providing NC State students with current, relevant, and thought-provoking ideas that will challenge you to think about your future. Whether you want to know more about what hiring managers are really thinking, or you just need to hear an honest and encouraging story about overcoming obstacles to reach your goals, we've got you covered. Wolfpack Career Chats is just one of the many services we provide. Whether it's career fairs, on-campus interviews, co-op opportunities, or more, we are here for the pack. Hello, this is Marcy Bullock. Welcome to Wolfpack Career Chats. Today on the line, I have Raven Solomon. Welcome, Raven. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on. I'm so happy to have you. So I'm going to read the back cover of your book, which has a super impressive bio on you. And your book is called Leading Your Parents, 25 Rules to Effective Multigenerational Leadership for Millennials and Gen Z, which is a lot of our audience. So sit back and listen to all the wonderful things you've done because it's very impressive. Raven Solomon is a millennial who's cracked the code on how to lead intergenerational teams. Whether as a keynote speaker, author, or founder and president of the Charlotte-based Center for Next Generational Leadership and Professional Development, a startup focused on providing soft skill development to the leaders of tomorrow, Raven uses her formidable leadership skills and business acumen to help multi-generational students and professionals reach their full potential as leaders and change makers. As the valedictorian of her college graduating class and one of the youngest ever executives in the Fortune 50 company at which she spent nearly a decade, Raven has shown that her approach to leading business and people yields results. Wow. (laughs) It's a little awkward to hear, huh? (laughs) I was thinking, I was like, take it in because you probably never hear someone say it. And I, um, I think what you've done as an NC State grad is so impressive. And as you know, our listeners, they're at that stage where they're just thinking about what they're going to do when they transition to the workforce. So did you have any idea you would be where you are today when you were here back? I'm trying to think, what year did you graduate? So I graduated in 2008. 2008. So you, you haven't been out that long, only 12 years. Did you ever picture yourself doing this? You know, I, not really, if I'm honest. I knew that I wanted to do something in the business world. That was my major. I majored in business. So I spent a lot of time at the Pool College of Management. Um, I know that building very, very well now. Um, but, yeah, I, I knew that I would do something in business. My concentration was marketing, but I didn't really know if I was going to do anything within that field. Um, I knew that I wanted to do something that would enable me to leverage the minor that I received in Spanish. So I got the opportunity to study abroad while I was at state. Um, I went to Mexico, spent a semester there, um, and became fluent in Spanish. So I knew I wanted to use that. I knew I wanted to do it within the business world, but I had no idea that it would lead me to where I am today. And this is, I think, a reassuring thing to hear that you don't, when you're 18, 19, 20 or so, have to have it all planned out. So tell us a little bit about the journey from when you graduated to a a few bullet points to how you got to today. 
Sure. So I, as I mentioned, left state in 2008 with a business degree and a minor in Spanish. And I went to join this organization that many people have heard of called PepsiCo. And the subsidiary I joined was specifically Frito-Lay. So Frito-Lay, most people don't know, is like um, the daughter or son of PepsiCo. So I went on and joined a managerial training program at PepsiCo, um, knowing that within about a year, I'd have the opportunity to lead people, which I'd fallen in love with during my time at State. So I had the opportunity to be a part of the most phenomenal scholarship program on NC State campus called the Caldwell Fellow Program. And so throughout that, my experience with that, I mean, you are amidst this incredible community of people for three and a half years because uh, you typically come in during your freshman year, your first semester as a freshman. So you really don't start the program until your second semester. So I got the opportunity to spend three and a half years with these phenomenally incredible people who helped kind of groom and cultivate me into hopefully a change maker one day, um, but certainly a servant leader. And so I understood and fallen in love with the concept of servant leadership during my, my days at State. And then I go on to join this organization who really had a program that was built upon servant leadership. They didn't use that terminology, but it was that. So you had to run a, a chip route for the first year of your career there if you were going to be a manager of people who run chip routes, right? And so to me, that was – that was servant leadership exemplified. And so I took the, the opportunity. I ran a chip route for a year, and I always tell audiences that I speak to that, yes, I did indeed get up at 4 a.m., get on my hands and knees for 12 to 15 hours a day and put up Tostitos and Doritos and Lay's and everything else that Frito-Lay makes um, after graduating as valedictorian of NC State. But the reason I did it was, again, I, I'd fallen in love with servant leadership, but secondly, Coming out of state, I knew that, I think I knew, because I didn't really know for sure then, but I think I knew that I wanted to lead people. So I went on to PepsiCo, led my first team. It was 16 men who were old enough to be my parents, hits the title of my book. And we had some opportunities and challenges to overcome, of course, right? We look very different. We were certainly of different generations. And really the, the biggest obstacle was, I'd honestly been alive in the same time, same amount of time that they've been working at Frito-Lay in a lot of cases. So it was clearly a challenge, but nonetheless, we overcame that. And I went on to hit what they call the fast track at PepsiCo and Frito-Lay um, and just began to get promoted year over year and found myself, you know, leading larger teams year over year um, and loving what I did. But unfortunately, I was at the, the pinnacle of my career at 28 years old, I had reached that executive level that you mentioned at the beginning of our talk. And unfortunately, I just started having seizures out of nowhere and was diagnosed with epilepsy. So that really is what shifted my life. It shifted my career um, and everything else to kind of force me to pivot into something completely different, but yet really, really related, uh, interrelated. And that is what I do now as a keynote speaker who studies generations and provides leadership and professional development to the next generation of leaders in our communities. That's 
wonderful story and I am I am glad that you shared the struggle that hit you with the diagnosis that you received because it's I feel like it's in the blink of an eye your life can change and oftentimes we're just not grateful for everything we have with our health and I think we have so many struggles we have to overcome how did you overcome that and have the courage to make this transition yeah, you know, um, during that time, I, I'd experienced so many challenges up up until that point. Um, what I didn't mention is as I was rising the corporate ladder, if you will, I lost both of my parents less than 30 days apart um, oh my gosh. To, to, to different issues. And so that was super duper duper challenging to say the least, right? Um, but what I ended up doing was throwing myself into work. So I got really, really good at what I did, but I sacrificed myself my mental health, my emotional health, uh, spiritual health, and so much more in the process. And I think epilepsy was really the, almost the reminder that I had sacrificed myself and I really wasn't caring for myself in the way that I should have. And so it was a pretty dark time. I won't even, you know, say that it wasn't Marcy, um, but it took me about eight months to a year to heal from, from the car accident I'd gotten into as a result of one of my seizures to really seek the help that I needed from an emotional standpoint. So I went to therapy, which I'd never really done prior to that. But throughout that process, I realized how much trauma I'd endured but never really dealt with. So a part of my, you know, process in helping me pivot and make the decision to choose me was really going to therapy and talking through um, some of my challenges and some of my issues and the things that have held me back and realizing why I am the way that I am. Um, and now I'm, I'm able to leverage that perfectionistic way that has, you know, in, in the past benefited me, but also harmed me in a way, I'm able to now use that in my own business, um, doing something that I absolutely love, but I'm also able to temper it a little bit now knowing more than I did back then. So I think a huge part of it for me was, was going to therapy, creating higher self-awareness um, about myself and who I am and why. And then leveraging that, I know I'm still growing. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and say that I definitely still have my times where work becomes my vice. And uh, sometimes it can get in the way and I have to, again, pull myself back off the cliff um, and make sure I'm caring for me. But that was a huge decision that led to me pivoting into entrepreneurship is that I had to choose myself over uh, Doritos, right? <laughs> and up until that point, <laughs> right. I, I'd chosen, um, you know, the company so many times. And after my accident, it was really my opportunity to, to make a decision to choose myself. And, and that's what I did. Uh, that takes a lot of courage, Raven. And this whole story about you losing your parents within 30 days and then realizing that you were just jumping so hard into work and neglecting your own mental health. I, I am wanting our students and listeners to understand that when you are struggling, it is okay to reach out for help. And we have an episode earlier on in Wolfpack Career Chats, episode number four. Listeners, check that one out about finding happiness because this is very important and there is some data and research that shows there are changes you can make in your life to help you 
become happier. You don't have to struggle with depression and anxiety that there are resources on our campus. So even when you were a student here, did you ever think about going to the counseling center and reaching out for help or was there a stigma for you? You know, I didn't, and, and at that time, I hadn't gone through nearly as much as I, I would in my life, not knowing that, you know, what was to come at that point, but I didn't, when I was in college, I felt like, you know, I, I had it together for the most part, and depression was something that I never struggled with, um, anxiety was something that I never struggled with, until, you know, the experiencing the really traumatic events that would come later in my life. And so I think the reason why it took me so long to go to therapy to deal with um, the loss of my parents was because I don't think I understood that I wasn't well, mm. right? I, you know, because I was such a high performer and have always been that because the results were there, because I was being promoted, because I was moving all over, you know, every couple of years, because I had the house and I had the car and I had all the things that the world would say is success, I didn't realize that I was losing something, that I was neglecting myself until, you know, now I call epilepsy a blessing in my life. I, I didn't know I was missing those things until epilepsy kind of showed up and, and revealed, you know, all the things to me. So I didn't know that I needed, needed therapy until I went and I realized, wow, you know, uh, I probably should have done this a long time ago. And it's, it's one of those things where everyone has something they're dealing with. And my goodness, all the things you encountered. I mean, my heart goes out to you because I'm also a child who's lost both of their parents. And there's not a day that goes by that you don't think about them. And yeah. this is... This is grief. We all encounter grief. We never want to think mm -hmm. that the people we love won't be with us forever. We never want to think that we're all even mortal, that there's like no expiration date stamped on our arm like a carton of milk. But when it yeah. hits you, like you said, a diagnosis or the loss of loved ones, this is, this is hard to deal with. And asking for help is great because it's also free on campus. And when you are a working woman, you got to pay for it. <laughs> That's exactly right. You absolutely have to pay for it. And it's not always cheap. So um, I would definitely utilize that resource if I was still at state and, and had similar situations occur. Um, but you know what? One other thing that I would add as to why I didn't go to therapy right away is a part, it was a part of how I was raised, right? I think, you know, within the African-American community, we talk about this a lot now, but it, therapy is, all, is kind of seen as, it, it definitely has a stigma attached to it, but it's also, in a sense, when you're raised to be such a strong individual all the time through everything, you almost don't even understand the value of therapy because you see it as a a potential weakness, right? And so um, after experiencing all of this stuff, if you will, in my life, I realized that weakness is not a bad thing, um, as I once thought it, that it was. I always thought that to be strong, you had to, you know, stick it out. You had to endure. You had to persevere. You had to apply grit and resilience in every single thing. And I'd done that for decades up until that point. And when epilepsy showed up, it was just the reality that you cannot persevere through everything by yourself. It's just not possible. 
And your culture, your upbringing, all these records that were playing in your head, I've got to be strong yeah. and I, could, I should be able to do this. And really what everyone else saw was this, this perfect life. Like you said, the car, yeah. the, the success, you're a perfectionist, you have to do everything so well. And I know a lot of our listeners can relate to that feeling like it's not okay to make a mistake. I can never fail yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that, helping people just get through that aspect of it? Because I just feel like practice, it, it makes you better, but it does not ever make you perfect. Yeah, that is so true. It's so true. And I think if I'm honest, I still struggle with perfectionism. And I, uh, I believe that therapy helped me kind of see why, um, just from some old tapes playing in my mind from childhood and how, you know, being the A student, sometimes the AB student <laughs> uh, within my family led to a certain degree of expectation and accountability that I didn't see happen in my siblings. So for me, it was this constant revere and, and a super high expectation for you that you thought was normal and that you, you know, would always strive for because you wanted to make those who you looked up to proud. And so I did that. Um, but realizing that, you know, perfection was, like you said, not attainable in the end. Um, but I still, I still strive for it. And one thing my, my therapist helped me understand as a perfectionist is that your, if you're a perfectionist, your definition of good is probably the average person's definition of excellent. So mm -hmm. if you just focus on being good, okay, um, you're going to have to let some things go in terms of trying to make sure it's absolutely pristine and polished and perfect. You, you have to let that expectation go and just try to be good. And just knowing that still your level of good is going to be higher than, let's say, the average. Uh, so that, that advice helped me a lot. And then the other, the other thing that I kind of live my life by now is I can't say that I embrace failure, that I just absolutely love failure, because if I told you that, I would, I would be lying. Mm -hmm. um, I, I still don't just welcome failure um, like the books say that we should, but I think I've come to understand that within every failure there's a lesson, um, and that lesson is what can make you greater and maybe closer to perfection, you know, if that makes sense. So it's kind of the refining process. Right. Yeah, we're, we're all a work in progress. And so I, I will say, don't put a fork in me yet because I'm not done and I'm a lot <laughs> older than you. But uh, this thing about these records that you were just talking about, that it took you so long to hear them and to really have someone to confide in that's trained in this area. So I, I feel like I am on the most stressed out campus on the planet. And I look at my students, I teach four different classes, and I actually ask students to write down what their negative thought was that is always popping in their head that they are struggling to overcome. And I'm just going to read these because honestly, this broke my heart. These are quotes. I feel stupid and ugly. Nothing goes my way. I'm inadequate. I'm not smart enough. I'm wasting my life. I'll never be successful. I do everything wrong. This always happens to me. I'm going to fail like before. I'm not worthy of a dream job. And these 
like the biggest prison is in your own mind. And this was actually a mm. quote from our event yesterday that um, Sabria Dobbin said. We had a big career con event on campus that you spoke at last year, which was fantastic. And I heard so many good things about your keynote. And this year, this idea that your prison is your own mind, you're holding yourself back. I, I just mm -hmm. wanted you to talk a little bit about how you have been able to let go of that prison and encouraging others to do the same. Yeah. Wow. That's a great quote, by the way. And, and just like you, I'm heartbroken by the things that are written on that paper. My goodness. Um, you know, I, I think, and that kind of leads me to the advice that I would give that reminds me of the day in which we live in, honestly. I mean, right. I believe that Social media, while it's one of the best things that we've been given from a business standpoint and from a, even a personal standpoint and a, whole, a bunch of other standpoints, I think that where it becomes detrimental is when we are constantly comparing ourselves against someone else or something else. And I think social media just opens up the gateway for that to be a, an everyday reality for so many of us. I mean, I struggle with it. Um, being, again, a perfectionist and someone who's an overachiever, when you see something happening for or, or somewhere else, you automatically think, like, oh, well, why, do, why, why am I not doing that? Well, clearly I should be doing that. And, oh, I want that, so let me do, you know. And so you end up stretching yourself so thin, but you also end up beating yourself up all the time because you don't have what somebody else has or you're not walking in what somebody else is walking in. And so one of the most practical pieces of advice I would give for just maintaining peace in regards to what you have and what you're working on and staying in your lane is to take a social media break. And I know this generation, because I study them all the time, mm -hmm. this generation has the fear of missing out. And I get it. But you know, we have to just let that go for our own sake and our own peace, our own peace of mind. One thing that I tell myself all the time is that, you know, the swimmer who wins the meet is not glancing over at his competition the entire time during the race. There may be a slight glance if necessary, but those who win consistently are those who keep their head down, keep their hand to the plow, and those that are running their own race. So my advice would be just take a break from social media when the anxiety is climbing and the comparison is all over you because it's a reality, and then focus on running your race. The, the way that somebody else works out <laughs> will never, ever benefit your race and your time. So that would be my advice, to run your own race. That's such a great analogy to use the swimmer because you're right. Like if they if they're looking to see what someone else is do, they're just seconds are coming off of their own time. And mm -hmm. I think this, um, like you said in the workout, this reminds me of something that I just heard. Um, I was listening to this podcast with Oprah interviewing Michelle Obama, and she was she's my age, which is fifty six, and she said, "I can't look at the thirty year old." 
people in the gym. That's yeah. not my body anymore. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, you're, you're like amazing. That inspired me so much. <laughs> and I think with, um, we do, we compare ourselves. And when you're in college, it's the worst time because you're constantly getting compared. And that yeah. GPA, oh my gosh, I know you talked about your GPA and you talked about getting A's and B's. And this is this number, but it's only a number that does not define you and so I, one of the, one of the things I told my students when I read those cards was I said, first of all, you're trying to be a fortune teller, which you're not, which is I won't find a good job. Also, you're trying to be a mind reader, which you're not. Oh, they won't like me. I'm not good enough. And so I, I wonder if you have any other thoughts on, on when you find yourself slipping into that. I love take a break from social media 100%. Um, I'll also tell students maybe just to watch your thought, like to be a aware that mm -hmm. that thought that you wrote down on that paper is coming back into your mind and you get to choose if you want to believe it and then the emotions will come from that yes yes and I would I would say you know as you are listening to your thoughts and being cognizant of them I would say think deeper to, to try to find what the root is of that issue and so I, I think just for my own example Again, knowing that I'm a perfectionist and I now know why, right, I'm an overachiever and I now know why, I know now that when I'm, I find myself consistently comparing myself and beating myself up because I'm not where I think I should be based upon where others are, and, you know, when I get into that cycle, I have to remind myself, okay, Raven, stop. Right now, you're comparing. Okay, why are you comparing? Well, I'm comparing because they seem to be further along in this particular area than I am. Okay, well, why does it matter that they're further along in this particular area than you are? And then I get to the root of it and say, well, either I'm not doing X, Y, and Z that's on my to-do list that I know I need to do, but I've been prioritizing something else over that to get me to that, that place, right? And so right. I try to find the, the, the root of the issue Maybe there's a remedy, maybe there's not. Maybe it's something I need to talk through with my therapist. But at the end of the day, I think there's always an underlying issue that we've got to address. And most of the time, it's something that involves the heart, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? At the end of the day. And I think, too, when you're in college, you don't fully know who you are just yet. Mm -hmm. So you almost expect there to be some degree of... Um, some degree of, of doubt, right, self-doubt, and some degree of ambiguity and frustration and not knowing what you want and when you want it and where and all that jazz. So the other advice I would give is just, like, know that there is so much time. <laughs> There's so much mm -hmm. time for you to figure that out. And I'm speaking to myself now as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think we end up getting so wrapped up into wanting things to happen now that we forget that there's time. There's mm -hmm. absolutely time. So let's focus um, on where we are right now, running our own race where we are now, try to get to the root of our issues and let's work through them, but know that there is time to figure this stuff out. 
Absolutely. And this, um, this thing that you do in your head where you say, Raven, you're doing it again. That's an, a fantastic strategy because it is you observing it and then saying mm -hmm. to yourself, like, what is that yielding in my life? Is that the feeling that I want to have or would I rather have a different feeling? And this yeah. other analogy, because I know there's lots of dog lovers in the world. I don't know if you are or not. <laughs> I've become love, over time. I've you, become you over dogs? time. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to give you a dog analogy, even though maybe it's not your favorite animal. If you're a cat person, <laughs> it's okay. Um, but when you have a new puppy and the puppy is chewing on something, like maybe it's your really expensive Adidas shoes, and you're like, oh, puppy, please, these cost me $200. You can't just yell at the puppy. You have to replace the shoe with the chew toy. And then the puppy's like, oh, I got reinforced a lot when I chewed on the chew toy. I think I'll choose that instead of the expensive sneaker. It's the same mm -hmm. thing, like you said, with the swimming. Um, and I love that one. It's this whole idea of going, ah, I've got to replace my expensive sneaker, which is this negative thought with a positive thought. And it's going to give me, it's not easy. I mean, it's not just like you do it overnight because you've been right. practicing for a long time thinking those things that I read on the card, right? I mean, it's not just like it happened in one day. It's just like when we go to the gym, we don't lift up a 30-pound weight and go, look at my biceps. Like, it takes a lot of practice to change your body and also to change your mind. And so the fact that you're working on that week after week and being a role model for other people just to stop the stigma, I think is fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. It is absolutely a process. It is a process, but what I think we all deserve for ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, we all deserve it. We all deserve like to go on our own journeys, like you said, and to to focus on like what's really when we're all by ourselves. How are we feeling? That notion that maybe I have on the outside what people think I should have, and I'm walking around looking like I'm all together, but inside, I mean, what you had to deal with with your epilepsy and losing your parents. This was a lot of heavy stuff that you're now working through and being honest about with the listeners and this perfectionist mentality of knowing that you can be good that's that's great and you mean you're not just good you are you know this book we haven't even gotten to it yet and our time has gone by so fast because I love that we got on our our talk but I want you to say something about your book um, because I think it is so challenging for this generation to be interacting with many different other people. And I read your article on your LinkedIn about the OK Boomer. So we just have to get into that because that's a hilarious meme. And I will be the self-confessed boomer um, on, the, on the call right now. So what are your thoughts about that? And what tips do you have for people that are, you know, 21, 22, moving into this workforce with people that are really different than they are? Yeah, so the, the OK Boomer thing, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of it, um, but it, it really is, it's a dismissive comment that millennials and specifically Generation Z are kind of using now to just kind of say, all, all right, you know, Boomer, we get it, like whatever, you know, it, it, it's designed to dismiss. Um, some of whether the thoughts are legitimate or whether they're illegitimate, just, it, I don't want to hear it, just like, whatever. Um, and, I, and I get it, you know, it, and it's become a very you know, overutilized thing on the internet where people are finding it funny. And while there is a degree of, of you know, funniness to it, I think that um, it could be problematic 
for sure. Um, and in, in the article, I talk specifically about how it can be problematic from a discriminatory standpoint in the workplace. So we just got to know that, you know, using that type of language in the workplace, even if it's a joke, it can be seen, especially if you're a leader, it can be seen as discriminatory. So we have to be careful. But the other question I posed throughout the article was, you know, while this particular law about uh, age discrimination protects a boomer when they're receiving this type of language um, in a leadership context or other contexts, if that same boomer is saying some derogatory things to that millennial about their age, this particular law may not protect that individual in the same way or with the same rigor. Um, so that was the point of the article. But I think my reason for writing that and my reason for writing this book ultimately is to help us as workplaces, as communities to work better together across generations. And so the book that I wrote is really for a millennial or a member of Gen Z, and it's designed to help you lead and influence people who are way older than you, who are far more experienced than you. So the questions that, that the book answers is, how do I get the respect of someone who has been you know, in the workforce longer than I've been alive? How do I consistently earn their trust? How do I display confidence often enough so they actually believe I deserve to be here and that I'm capable and that I'm not just here with a, a piece of paper claiming that I know everything, right? So I wrote the book to help millennials and Gen Z navigate the multi-generational multi workforce that we have amongst us and more specifically know how to lead within that. So whether you are a direct manager of someone or you're an indirect manager, meaning you really influence the behavior of other folks, right? So maybe you're leading a project and you don't manage these people, but you need to influence their behavior so that they contribute to the project. How do you understand that boomer or that Gen Xer and the way that they operate relative to the way that you operate? And then what do you do to close that gap? So that's why I wrote the book. That's why I study what I study. That's why I you know, write the articles that I write. It's really about creating a generationally inclusive workforce. And this is such a great book. And all of our students who heard you speak on campus have have been reading it and learning so much and i i hope people who are listening will get a copy how would you maybe summarize in in two or three bullet points a couple of tips for the millennials that would love to get you know the the fast version the cliff notes version of your book yeah so i would say the number one thing that makes an effective leader effective is that they first understand the people that they're leading. So it's really all about creating empathy. That's number one. And so this book is designed, at least the first couple of chapters is really designed to help you at a, at a high level understand the people that you're potentially working with based upon the context in which they kind of grew up, the, the environment that they entered the workforce under, the tools that were available and were not available. So I say it starts with empathy, first of all. So if you, if you are in a, a position where you need to lead or influence people, the first step is you have to understand them. So you use my book, you use, you know, the internet, you use them is <laughs> probably right. the most important thing. So you sit down and you talk to them, you converse, you have conversation outside of the context of the work 
and you get to know them, what makes them tick, what motivates them, why they do what they do. So that's the number one thing. And then I would say you have to focus on more than just the people you lead. So in the book I talk about uh, this group of people that I call PSS, and those are your peers, your subordinates, and your superiors. So when you're talking about managing your career and managing your personal brand in the workplace, it's important that you realize you're not just managing that in front of one group of people. You also got to manage that brand in front of your peers, the subordinates, I hate that word, but those are the, the people that you lead, and then your superiors, so you have to learn to manage up. So there's a lot even within those two. There are 25 rules that I could literally go through right now, but I'm not going to you know, bore you. But those two things I think I'd highlight, and I would say the book teaches you how to do both of those. Yes, the 25 rules are fantastic. So I strongly encourage people to to uh, give this a read. And also, if they're looking for speakers, uh, obviously, you've got wonderful ability to get up in front of a group and share these ideas and really connect to this generation. So thank you for talking with me today. We have had a wonderful chat. And you know what my last question is going to be, because I warned you a little bit ahead of time. I want you <laughs> to give advice to your 2020 self in the year 2040. So you got to add 20 years to your age. And what do you need to hear now from Raven Solomon? Hmm. I would tell my 2020 self that it's going to be okay. That you had time. That you won't regret working nonstop, or I should say that the other way around, you will regret it if you work nonstop and you don't give way for your life and the life of those who you love. So I think my 2040 self would say, relax, you have time, it's not that serious, enjoy your life, live your life, because tomorrow's not promised. That is fantastic, and that's a wonderful way for us to close. Thank you, Raven. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to get back on campus. The NC State Career Development Center prepares and empowers students to identify and pursue their career goals. Stop by Pullen Hall to learn more. Thank you for listening to Wolfpack Career Chats, and we hope to see you around campus. Have a packtacular day.